Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Ad Hoc History. It's not the history podcast you wanted, it's the history podcast you deserve. What is up, Luxa? Not much, Asher. How are you? I am doing quite well. I'm very excited to finally be back here recording. It's been quite the absence. I apologize. Uh, but I got a new microphone, and uh, hopefully the audio quality will be a little bit more tolerable than the last few episodes. Well, yeah, we've got a pretty interesting topic to talk about today, and one that I've a lot of people have shared with me, they don't consider to be an interesting topic. But I think that there's a lot of, you know, interesting dynamics here in this story that hopefully we'll be able to share and maybe change your mind about if you think that World War One is boring. Or the Great War, I should say. Absolutely. I think part of the reason it is, I guess, not as popular in like media culture, there aren't as many books written about it as World War II, is because it's much more complicated and maybe unsettling than World War II, which had a lot of kind of good versus evil themes, you know. And it's just a lot easier to feel good about that war. This one, not so much. This one's very existential and very unnerving. And the causes of it are much more abstract and kind of, I know, obscured. So the whole thing is, I mean, seemingly very needless. And I mean, to be quite frank, extremely depressing. But I think it probably is more influential than World War II. We're kind of still, all all this time later, over 100 years later, kind of still living in the shadow of this thing. And this really transformed the world, I mean, at least in the West. And it was kind of the crucible for the modern world that we live in now. And this thing touched everything. And it was the first time that war on this scale had been fought in an industrialized, you know, way. And so the legacy of it, you know, is still being felt to this day. And uh, yeah, we can kind of get into the various maybe causes of the war, uh, the war itself, the actors in the war, people's motivations for going for war, um, and maybe some of the legacy as well. Okay, awesome. And yeah, just kind of touching back on what you said about it possibly being more influential than World War II. I mean, it could sort of be considered that World War II, um, you know, resulted indirectly from the Great War, right? Absolutely. In a lot of ways, World War II was like, take two of the Great War. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's dive on in here. Hell yeah. All right. So this is a huge topic. Um, there's a lot of different ways we could go with it. But I think the best way to kind of approach this is to just kind of pick and choose what we want to talk about. Um, trying to like summarize this whole thing in like a really cohesive way is maybe beyond the scope of our show. Um, so feel free to ask any questions that you want and we can kind of jump around. Um, it's one of those topics where you can just pick a point and that point is going to connect to a bunch of other topics and we can just go in any direction, but maybe we can just start with kind of like not the, the nominal start of the war, like the start of the war. How did this thing all start? And it's kind of a crazy story. Uh, it happened in Bosnia of all places, little Bosnia which at the time was not an independent country. And so this is 1914. And there is a royal uh, member of the royalty, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was visiting Bosnia and having a little tour of the city. And where was this Bosnia, person the Duke of? He was the Duke of Austria. Okay. 
And there was this thing called the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which existed until World War I. And he was a member of the Habsburg family. We've talked about the Habsburgs before on the show. It's probably, it was probably the oldest and most entrenched royal family in all of Europe. They had been in power since you know, the days of the Holy Roman Empire. And by when 1914 comes, rolls along, you have this kind of state that's kind of the remnants of the Holy Roman Empire, which is another really complicated topic in itself. But Austria was a really, really powerful country for a long time. It was the premier German power in Europe for many, many years uh, until it's finally eclipsed by the uh, uniting of the German, the various German states in the, you know, the modern day country of Germany. But so Austria-Hungary was this kind of unification between the Austrian throne and the Hungarian throne. And they had this sweet little empire in Eastern Europe that engulfed most of the Balkan states. And so these would be states like um, the former Yugoslavia, which is Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and I think they might have had parts of Romania, Bulgaria. It was a big kind of multi-ethnic conglomeration. And you have this German on the throne, and he's visiting one of their new kind of acquisitions, which was Bosnia, which had just, you know, Eastern Europe had been for a long time controlled by the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, who are going to be uh, one of the major combatants in this war. Actually, on the side of the Austrians, believe it or not. But anyways, he's visiting this little tiny enclave in, you know, in Bosnia, Sarajevo, the capital, and he's assassinated. This assassination of the Archduke creates a crisis in Europe. And things kind of spiral out of control and we get this massive fuck all war involving all these powers that have nothing to do with Bosnia, nothing to do really with Austria or the Balkans or Eastern, you know, Southeastern Europe. It just, once this thing got going, it had a life of its own. If I recall correctly, this incident happened in sort of like a public way that was a little bit of a spark that was tossed into this kind of powder keg situation that set everything off. Absolutely. Like, so the actual assassination itself, like, while it was, you know, a big deal, the prime minister of Japan was assassinated last year. And that's, you know, that's a global headline. It's a big deal. But, you know, that didn't spark any wars, right? That mm. didn't lead to World War Three. Like, so how did Knock this happen? Knock on wood, you know? I mean, right? <laughs> Knock on wood, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so the way it happened is it's kind of like a this weird kind of freaky story where, you had Serbia, which had recently been liberated from the Ottoman Empire. Serbia is a Slavic country. It's an Eastern Orthodox country. They really have a kind of historical claim to a lot of the Balkans. Before the Serbians were conquered by the Turks in like, I don't know, 1500, we're talking about Middle Ages, they actually had a pretty nice little empire. A lot of the kind of early renaissance actually started in serbia but you had this big long period of, of being a conquered people being subjugated and they finally became free and they had their little state of serbia but they were looking into other parts of the balkans that used to be part of serbia and wanted to kind of extend their influence into that so what ended up happening is you had these ethnic serbians from bosnia that formed a little clique and decided that they were going to assassinate the Archduke of 
Austria because they felt that Bosnia should be part of Serbia, not a part of, you know, this Austrian empire. And so they, these guys were like college kids, um, very, very young, you know, not like paramilitary, like CIA assassins, like nothing like that. They were like intellectuals, kind of poets and stuff like that. And so they formed this really kind of maybe amateur conspiracy and they got some weapons they were probably being funded by the state of Serbia. It's not really known. It's still kind of controversial. But they had this secret society called the Black Hand. And this, I guess the idea was that we're going to assassinate the Archduke. And then somehow that's going to let us join Serbia. But anyway, so they, they arrive in Sarajevo. The Archduke comes and he's kind of making a tour of the city. And they attempt to assassinate him. They attack his motorcade, his carriage, in the streets basically and they throw some grenades and the whole thing is just a complete debacle they miserably fail to assassinate him he survives but like one of his drivers was injured and so the assassins like spread out they you know, they try to escape and this one guy vin vin vincillo princip probably massacring that name vincillo princip um he's basically sitting by himself like outside of like a cafe or something on like the curb and all of a sudden, you know, the assassination attempt had failed, but all of a sudden the Archduke, his car just appears right in front of him. And after the failed assassination attempt, the Archduke, instead of calling off, you know, the tour of the city, he wanted to go to the hospital to visit some of the members of his entourage that had been injured. And they took a wrong turn. So his car pulls off to turn around and it pulls right in front of Vincilla Princip, who's sitting there. And he basically just stands up goes up to the window and just empties his clip into the Archduke and his wife, Sophie. Man, that's so crazy. You know, like this person takes a wrong turn and we get the Great War, you know? It's it's insane, dude. Yeah, it really is. If he just, you would think after a possible assassination attempt, you would maybe lay low and like not go on with your art itinerary, you know, but... One would think, but, you know, who knows? Maybe, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, <laughs> well, we can't go back and change history. All we can do is talk about it, so. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely one of those incidents where it's like, holy crap, this things could have played out completely different if it, yeah, it wasn't for this one little wrong turn, you know? I think we find so many places like that in these stories, which is so fascinating to me. I really like that aspect of learning about history. Could we talk a little bit about the sort of powder keg? So this was the spark. Like maybe we could set up the the powder keg into which it was tossed. Absolutely, yeah. So there's a lot of different elements to this war. But the, one of the big ones is nationalism and ethnic identity. And this really plays into those, Ser, you know, Serbian people in Bosnia. And this kind of search for, I guess, the search for a nation state. Okay, so when we say nationalism, maybe we should like define what that means. Sure. Because it's like one of those words that everybody says and everything. So just in terms of, I mean, yeah, there's, it, and I think it's a little bit of a politically charged word for a lot of different reasons. So maybe just for the purposes of this discussion, we should sort of like define what we mean when we're talking about it. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Let's see. So the definition here is identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. Okay, so like looking at your nation as like a football team that you're rooting for and the other ones you want to lose. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, kind of. You have these kind of ties of unity. So you be the big one is like language and I guess ethnicity. And for a lot of these countries in Eastern Europe, because they were kind of conquered kind of in before they could ever develop into really powerful states, they were conquered by another power and they were kind of held in bondage. And once that other power has weakened and retreats, well, you have this group of people that wants to be strong. They want to be united. They want to have a nation state, which can, yeah, represent their interests. And so there's just this, this growing desire for, for a nation, for a better future, for a, to be strong again, to not be dominated by other peoples, you know, by faraway peoples that are different. That, does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is a, a big powder keg in lots of Europe where really be kind of because of geography and bad luck, countries that could have been super, super powerful were kind of conquered in the cradle before they could ever get to that point because their neighbor was just bigger and stronger. And now that that neighbor is no longer bigger and stronger, well, how do we, how do we catch up? How do we, how do we become a unified country? Like how do we throw off the dust of all these years of, of sadness and, and hard times and become strong again? So this was a big element in it uh, in World War One, And like, the, I guess the nation state is kind of mostly expressed by modern day countries are pretty much nation states. That line is becoming a little bit more blurry now with kind of internationalism and kind of the new world that we're living in. But back 100 years ago, 110 years ago, not so much. And having a strong, you know, kind of country was the goal for most, for a lot of people. It was a dominant political ideology was that you know, this is the way to do things. But the idea of like the idea of the nation state goes back way, way further than this. I mean, this goes back to antiquity where, you know, the, the Jews were constantly talking about this as one of the main reasons to revolt. You know, the, the empire that we're a part of doesn't represent us. It doesn't represent our interests. It's oppressive to our, you know, um, our ideologies, our beliefs. You know, like we want to have our own country. We want to make our own destiny in the world, um, you know, which is probably something that people all over the world, you know, have felt similarly that in this big wild kind of environment where you have a bunch of different groups, you know, you don't want to be dominated by another group. You want your group to be the one dominating or not necessarily dominating other people, but at least controlling your own destiny. Yeah, sure. Everybody wants to be in charge of their own shit. That makes sense. Yeah. And so this is a big element to World War One is that you had these emerging states that wanted to kind of take power for themselves and not necessarily at the expense of other people, but just for their own, for to kind of take control of their own destiny. So that's a big element. Another big element is kind of the opposite, where you have imperialism and colonialism, where people want to do the exact opposite. They want to take over other people. And imperialism had been the rage for most of, you know, European history and not just European, but for many parts of the world. Stretching back to, you know, ancient Rome, it was kind of just how you did things. If you're powerful, then you want to take over other countries and spread the flag. And this was thought of as what you should do, I guess. This was very popular <laughs> at the time, was mm -hmm. this colonial thinking, imperialist thinking. You know, if, if we want to be stronger, then we need to expand. And we have all these rivals, you know, that could could come and defeat us. And the only way to make sure that they don't become stronger than us is to take over places before they can take it over. So, you know, there's a scramble for Africa, this really kind of infamous event in the latter half of the eight, uh, the 1800s where 
there's this conference in Berlin and all the European powers come together. They have this big map of Africa and they kind of divide it up amongst the various powers. And so this is a way that we can all kind of get a piece of this pie without having to fight each other for it. So here, you can have this part, but we're only going to say you can have that part if we can have this part. And this kind of goes around the table where they're just kind of auctioning off the whole continent in a way so that they can just kind of take it over without having to fight each other for it. Super um, gross, yeah. Yes, um, the Berlin Conference. Um, but anyways, yeah, so imperialism is a big part of this. And, you know, countries like Austria is very concerned about their empire. And these dang pesky empires are hard to hold on to once the people that live within them start getting these ideas about, you know, nationalism, where they want to have independence and freedom, right? So you have this kind of counter counterweight between people that want to dominate and people that want to be free. And that's very much an underlying kind of factor in this war, at least in kind of the origins of it. And then another big aspect are these secret alliances. And so part of the reason that the war spirals out of control and we have this little assassination that leads to this huge war is because these various countries would have these kind of under the table deals with each other. And it wasn't really obvious that, you know, what was going to happen if we go invade Serbia, it wasn't super obvious that that's going to trigger a war between Germany, France, and Russia. You know, so, but because of this kind of secret alliance system, it just made things very obscure. And there's all these little webs and everything is connected. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they had this really complicated secret alliances and really kind of shady under the table dealings um, happening diplomatically. So that's a big element of it. Another big element is economics, where you have kind of the situation that emerges where countries had had this huge arms buildup leading up to this war. A country like Germany had the largest army in the world, and they started building, I think it would have been the second largest navy in the world. And once you start these kind of state-sponsored economic military buildup, it kind of has a life of its own where the military needs to keep growing and it's providing a lot of growth for the citizens. So there's like thousands and thousands of people employed in in the, I guess, military industrial complex. And it just kind of feeds on itself where we, okay, we need new guns. Okay. That's going to help our economy because we're going to be giving the money back into the economy. All these workers are going to be building the guns. And it kind of led to this huge like arms rate, kind of like an arms race before the war. And it just so happens that this is like brand new technology that's coming online. And it, within like maybe like 50 years, 70 years, the naval aspect of military affairs had completely been revolutionized where we had like sailing ships with, you know, some cannons on them to within 70 years, steel battleships that weigh 40,000 tons. Yeah, the, totally. So it just like as the weapons and technology kept increasing and becoming more and more uh, modern and deadly, well, we just built new battleships 10 years ago, but the, the new ones completely outclass what we have. So we have to build new ones. And so we ha- like every 10 years, we're going to have to build a bunch of more battleships just to keep up with, you know, keep up with the Joneses, keep up with our rivals. And so you just had this huge arms race and people were coming up with better and better weapons. So, okay, that makes all of our stuff obsolete. We need our, be- we need better weapons. Sure. But the result was that you have like a super, <laughs> all these countries were like armed to the teeth, basically. 
And yes. And so the other thing that's happening during this is the very rapid um, industrialization and um, growth of Germany, right? Yes. And in our Japan episode, we talked a little bit about how like Japan modernized in about 30 years and just completely revolutionized their society. Their way of life was completely changed. And yeah, Germany's it's a pretty fascinating similar. story. Yeah, that's that the Japan story is so fascinating. The way that it was done with all that intention and the the very like intentional like crafting of the like kind of mythos of it almost and like yeah, it's super fascinating. If you haven't heard that episode, definitely go uh, check it out. So yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The Meiji Restoration and the Birth of Modern Japan. But Germany was a little bit similar. I think within about 50 years the population doubled. Germany's an interesting place because it's it had always been very divided. When the Reformation happened, when Martin Luther happened, it kind of shattered Germany and it shattered it into a bunch of like very strong but isolated states. So you had a bunch of them. Like, you know, we could name them off here. Uh, you know, you had Bavaria, Westphalia, Prussia, Brandenburg, on and on and on. There's a bunch of them. Um, and they were all pretty strong individual states maybe kind of akin to italy where you had a bunch of kind of smaller city states around like venice and genoa naples on and on and on once germany becomes unified all of a sudden like overnight you have all of these kind of really strong places joining together and they become like much stronger than anyone else around them and to go along with that you just have this huge population growth and this huge growth in the industrial economy there's a you know, there's a ton of coal that was discovered in Western Germany. And when coal becomes, you know, the fuel for the Industrial Revolution, just everything in Germany just took off. And overnight, basically, once Germany's, Germany's unified, countries like France and Russia and Austria, they have this superpower basically right on their border who has way bigger population, way bigger economy, you know, way bigger industrial capacity. And they also are being led by Prussia, which was a state that was like super famous for its excellent military. So you had like these kind of military minded state that led the unification of Germany and they brought with it that kind of military ethos. Um, so kind of overnight, they become, they completely change the landscape of Europe and old animosities have to kind of go out the window to accommodate this new superpower. And the security of you know countries like France or Russia had to be reevaluated, and so part of these secret alliances was one. And this one actually wasn't secret; this was very public. But Russia and France, who did not like each other about a hundred years earlier, fought the Napoleonic Wars, were huge rivals. Well, they form an alliance, and the only reason they do this is to kind of keep Germany in check because. Neither one of them felt that they were strong enough to take on Germany by themselves, but together, maybe they could. Mm -hmm. We also have the British Empire, who their whole thing is like their navy, right? That's like their deal. Right. And they don't like that Germany is building all these cool ships, right? Yes. So about I think it's about 1900 or so. You know, Germany's been united for about 30 years, and... Because they weren't even a country until 1871, now all of a sudden they're like the most powerful country on the continent. And they're looking around the world and they don't feel like they are represented enough to their new power. Like they don't have things like the British or the French who have huge empires all over the world. 
And they start saying, okay, well, this idea starts kind of fermenting in kind of, I guess, the the ruling class of Germany that we need something called Weltmacht, which is world power. And like, we need our place in the sun. And okay, well, how did Great Britain become this massive colonial power all over the world? You know, the, the sun never set on the British Empire. They got colonies in Africa and they got India, they got Australia, they got Canada, they got all these islands in the Pacific. They're everywhere you know how can we get to that kind of same place as them and the one thing that kept coming up was their navy you know because the british controlled the oceans they could go anywhere they want you know they could choose the battlefield they could just dominate the world because of their navy and it also played into things like economics and trade you know control the sea then you kind of control everything in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. in this new kind of global perspective And so this idea in Germany, okay, well, we need to build a navy then. If we want to be a world power, if we want to have colonies all over the world, we need a navy. And they start this huge kind of naval buildup. A couple cities, I think Kiel and Wilhelms or even Wilhelmshaven become these massive naval shipyards where they're just pumping out ships and kind of plays into what we were just mentioning, where since they're making all these brand new ships... These are better than the ships that were made 20 years ago. So the British need to build new ships. The French need to build new ships. And it leads into this really ridiculous arms race where Germany and Great Britain are producing new battleships like every year. They're spending, I think Germany was spending 40% of its GDP on this naval program, you know, and it's creating all these jobs. It's created its own economy, um, the naval buildup. But for the British, they're looking at Germany and saying, okay, wait a minute, they already have the biggest army in the world and probably the best army in the world. Why the heck are they building this giant navy? Because they want to fuck with us. They want to be, they're trying to take away our thing. Want to take a slice of our pie or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And they felt very threatened by it, you know, because Britain did not have a big military. They were never a big army. I think they had like three divisions. Germany had 40 divisions. There's no way the British army could beat the German army. But because they had their navy, the German army could never get to Britain. But if they had this, if they had their own navy, maybe it didn't have to be as big, but if it could at least challenge them in the North Sea, then there's no way they could ever stop them. So it really kind of caused a crisis in Britain that we have this new power, this new power on the scene, the new kid on the block. They have a bigger economy than us. They have more population than us. And now they want to be number one on the ocean, or at least they want to be a close number two we just can't accept that it was just unacceptable for the british and it drove them into the arms of the french who are their historical rivals they you know fought many many wars against the french over the years but because germany was building all these ships it just um it kind of forced them to make plans to potentially fight germany and the biggest part of that was an alliance with france all right well when france and Germany, or sorry, when France and England team up, you know that things are bad, <laughs> as we noted before. <laughs> yes, it's just, um, it kind of shows that real politique, you know, that you had all these historical animosities um, between these two countries and cultures. But when, um, you know, when the situation presents itself, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and maybe together we can we can stop them. And it should also be said, though, that Germany and uh, Great Britain were basically natural allies. 
Uh, Great Britain's other big rival was Russia. Russia was always trying to push into Asia, push into the Middle East, and they were playing the, quote, great game with the British for like hundreds of years where they're competing over all these places in the Far East, they're competing over places in the Middle East. Russia and Britain did not like each other. But again, because of this naval buildup, it kind of allowed those two countries to form this alliance with France included called the Entente. Uh, Entente Cordiale. The the cordial agreement is what that translates to. And so that's going to be one side of the war is Russia, uh, France, and Great Britain. All three of these countries are very different. Um, The Tsar is still in power in Russia. And you have kind of the king on the throne in Great Britain. And then you have the French Republic. Um, So they're all very different. They all really don't like each other historically. But because the unification of Germany just changed the landscape of Europe, just completely decimated the uh, the balance of power, all of a sudden we have these three countries that also surround Germany forming an alliance against Germany, basically. So that was the Entente. Now, for Germany on their part, they had, I I would say, um, very poor leadership at this time. The royal families in Europe were like basically all related, and that's one of the kind of interesting aspects of this war is that the Tsar, the King of England, and the Kaiser of Germany are all part of the same family. Interesting. And they're all grandchildren of Queen Victoria. And they would all go to these, they all grew up like in kind of like family family relations. And Wilhelm II, the, the Kaiser, was like obsessed with the British. Like he loved the English. And he was a mem- he was an admiral in the in the British Navy. He was a general in their army. He would ride around in British uniforms, and he loved yachting. And his favorite thing every year was to go to the the yacht race in Britain. And he's a really interesting guy. I think he probably was never really meant to be the ruler. Uh, his father Frederick II passed away after only six months on the throne to uh, lung cancer. And his father was like a war hero. Uh, he was married to Queen Victoria's daughter. He was a very different guy. So if he would have lived, I think things, again, may have been very different. But we got this guy, Wilhelm, and he had a he had a birth defect where one of his arms was kind of like messed up. He never really had use of one arm, but he was very proud and he might have had a bit of a inferiority complex. But he's a very quirky and enigmatic guy, but he comes to power and he's just all about this rah-rah we need an empire. I need to be strong. I need, I don't know. We could talk about him for quite a bit, but. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. So that is another element to this is that all these people are related and they're all a member of this basically German Royal family, the house, uh, the house of Coburg and Saxe and Gotha, which had rulers on all these different thrones in Europe. And They'd all be intermarrying with each other. So it was just very incestuous kind of thing. And when the war does break out, you know, he's sending his um, cousin, the czar of Russia, all these telegrams. And he's sending telegrams back. And it's like two family members, like talking very lovingly to each other in these telegrams. You know, my dear Nikki, I, I hope you're doing well. You know, let's try to avoid the war. And then the other one replies, oh, it's so nice to hear from you, you know. It adds a, kind of an interesting element to the whole thing is that, yeah. you know, they're all related. but And it's interesting, too, that like the person in charge of Germany loved England so much. It sounds like, you know, if England would have tried to maybe make an alliance with them, that might have worked, too. Right. But maybe they weren't down to share the ocean, I suppose. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. 
It, it is. I mean, I think there were, I mean, there actually, there were lots of attempts with the di- a diplomatic kind of attempts to kind of forge an alliance between the two. Hmm. But yeah, once they started building those ships, it, I think it was just a bit too much for the British. Um, and I mean, did Germany really need those ships? When the actual war starts, they use them exactly one time. There is one major naval battle fought and they never use them again. And they're spending 40% of their GDP for decades on these damn things. And they're completely useless. They have no deciding outcome in the war. Well, they they weren't meant for the war. They were meant to go be for, you know, the purposes of empire. Another thing that should be said just before we go any further is that this war is really complicated and it's still being debated to this day. It's still somewhat controversial. The idea of causality and blame, like who's responsible for this war? Why did it start? All these things are still very hotly debated. Like, so there's not really one bad guy or like, you know, it's just kind of, it's much more gray and open to interpretation. And through the years, there's been kind of new historians coming up, offering a new kind of take on things. A lot of what I've been influenced are from like the German historians in the 70s who had a much more kind of harsh interpretation on Germany and gave them a lot of blame for the war. And I think there is something to that. So, But some people would say that Germany was just defending themselves, you know, that they are not responsible for this thing. Um, but yeah, so it just, it's, it's much more fuzzy than World War II, where, you know, the Nazis just started the war, you know. Yeah, but we do know that Germany ends up kind of getting blamed for it later, right? Absolutely. Yeah. They get stuck with a big paycheck uh, or a big bill and a bunch of guilt. And that's one of the big, big reasons for World War II is because they felt that they shouldered a lot of the blame for the first one unfairly. And mm. the terms of that peace deal were so onerous that it kind of cost future generations who had nothing to do with World War One were still going to be having to pay the war debt and the amenities and and just this kind of shame as well. It was a very humiliating deal. Um, so yeah, that is a big part of it, which we can get into maybe at the end of the war. Okay. To get back to our assassination, you know, so what what happens? There there is kind of this crisis that starts out, this diplomatic crisis, and the Austrian king, you know, his son has just been assassinated. And how do we respond to this? You know, they capture Ventrilo Princip. He is captured. So the assassin is taken into custody. You know, they interrogate him. They figure out that he's part of this secret society, the Black Hand. And, you know, there's some kind of connection to Serbia, or at least the Serbian military is involved with this thing in some way. And so they go to the state of Serbia and they say, well, you know, you have to pay for this. Like, why did you assassinate our heir? You know, like, and they come up with this really humiliating list of demands that they are threatening to attack the state of Serbia unless they basically capitulate on a bunch of different things. I don't have the list of demands here, but you can, you know, if you guys are interested in that, you can look them up. Uh, and so that, that's kind of their response to this is that they blame the state of Serbia for this Bosnian, you know, a, a Serbian man, a man of Serbian ethnic identity living in Bosnia who is not related to the state of Serbia in any kind of official capacity, but they go to the actual state and say, okay, this is your fault. You, you were funding these this assassins. Like, you must have planned it. Why did you do this? Here's a bunch of demands that we want from you. And these the list of demands was very onerous. They would basically have to give up a lot of their freedom, like kind of bow to the Austrians. You know, some people within the Austrian war cabinet, I think, saw this as a chance to take over these newly liberated parts of Eastern Europe, these had always been part of the Ottoman Empire. They were recently liberated. Well, now we can take them over and add them into our empire. 
And so they come up with this list of demands and they present it to, you know, the, the country of Serbia. But Russia, who is the other big Slavic powerhouse, you know, they had been very instrumental in liberating Eastern Europe. They had fought a number of wars with the Turks to kind of help their Slavic, Slavic brethren gain their freedom. And while they didn't like control Serbia, they were a close ally to them. And so Russia comes up and says, okay, well, if you attack Serbia, we're going to attack you. We're going to declare war on you. You know, so we have these alliances coming into play. Russia is a very powerful country at this point. It's still ruled by the Tsar, but I think it had the fourth largest economy in the world, and it was rapidly modernizing. You know, Russia had been very backwards for a long time, and they had fought a disastrous war against the Japanese about seven years earlier. But they've been starting to kind of recover their strength, and their economy's really taken off. And I think there was some thinking that Russia is the most dangerous country in Europe. You know, they have the most potential. And this was probably very true within kind of the German military high command, where, you know, Germany has just gone through this amazing period of modernization. You know, we came from a very kind of almost feudal system, and all all of a sudden we're in the industrial age, and we're a superpower. Now, the same thing could happen in Russia, you know, and they're starting to get there. But it was still a very backwards country. They had their own calendar that was different than everybody else. They had their own railway system that was different than everybody else. Things just didn't run that like smoothly in Russia, but they're still super powerful. They have a huge military, a huge like uh, pool of manpower to draw from. Probably, I think they had the most population in Europe. And so when Austria comes to Serbia, well, all of a sudden Russia says, okay, we're going we're gonna to defend them. So what ends up happening is Austria has an alliance with Germany. And the Germans kind of say, okay, well, we got your back. It's called the blank check statement, where Kaiser Wilhelm basically gives the Austrians a blank check that whatever you do, we're going to back you up. Go nuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can see how this thing, it's, it's very odd. But so the Austrians come back again and they say, okay, now they're very confident with Germany in their back pocket that we can force through these demands and we can take over the Balkans and... Russia won't do anything unless they want to fight Germany. So it creates this really fragile situation. All right, you with me so far? Yeah, for sure. So was this the thing that people were mad about? Like they're, like this move that Germany like gave these guys this blank check? Yes, this is like okay. a lot of the kind of latter day German historians have blamed the start of the war on this exact thing. Is okay. that if Germany hadn't have empowered Austria, there's no way they would have attacked Serbia. Austria would have been more chill and yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, like maybe they could have come to some kind of diplomatic solution or Serbia did go on to basically accept all of their demands. So it almost seemed like demands were so onerous that they thought they could not accept them, that this would be a perfect kind of casus belli, like a excuse to start a war, basically. Oh, you rejected our demands. Okay, we can declare war on you. Well, they actually accepted all of them, but they still declared war on them. And mm. this brings Russia into the war against Austria. So they accepted the demands, but they still declared war? Yeah. Well, why make the fucking demands in the first place, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they thought that they wouldn't accept them. But the, uh, yeah. Jeez. What but then when they show. actually did. <laughs> yeah. And, and you had some like really, you had some really bad leadership in Austria as well. The head of their military, von Hoffendorf, is one of the worst military minds, maybe in history. But he's also one of the biggest hawks. This guy just wanted to have a big war, I think. I, I don't know. We well, it fucking about sounds like it. I mean, right? <laughs> like, Yeah. And anyway, so, so they go 
plowing into Serbia, and this is this kind of the start of the war. You know, so Austria invades Serbia, and they have this huge army, and they just get their asses kicked in this first stage of the war. Like the Serbians had just fought several wars within the past five years, the Balkan Wars against the Ottoman Turks, and their army was very experienced, very battle hardened, and the initial stage of this war is just a disaster. And then Russia says, "Okay, well, we're gonna you attacked Serbia, we're we're joining the war," and this causes Germany to declare war on Russia. But because Russia and France are allied, they also have to declare war on France. And Germany, their kind of central kind of military minds had come up with this plan, you know. Once the Triple Entente became a thing, this alliance between Russia, France, and Great Britain had become a thing, well, their war planners had to come up with a contingency plan to still win a war against all of these powers combined. So they came up with this idea called the Schlieffen Plan. And the idea with, with this one was that the main enemy is going to be Russia. They have way more people than France. While France is more industrialized and probably has a finer military, our military is almost twice the size of the French military. Like, we can take them. And, but, you know, Russia's very inefficient. But once they get going, they can just steamroll us, just like they did to the French in the Napoleonic Wars. So... In order to win a war against both of these powers, we have to attack the French and take them out extremely quickly. And then once France is pacified, we'll send all of our forces back to the east and then deal with Russia. So within a few days, this is in August, you know, this big crisis is unfolding. Countries start declaring war on each other. And once Russia declares war on Austria, Austria declares war on Russia and they invade France. <laughs> so it's all very muddled and confused, but... They have this huge army poised and ready to take out Paris. They, they think they can do it within a month or two. And once they have taken out the French, okay, then we'll swing back around and then we'll deal with the Russians. Are you with me? Absolutely. All right. So that's basically how it unfolded. And unfortunately, to get to France, we have to go through Belgium. Belgium was the kind of country that was, it was created after the Napoleonic Wars to be a boundary between France and Germany. It's supposed to be like a buffer state. <laughs> it's a very interesting country. Like a lot of a lot of the people there speak French. A lot of the people there speak Dutch. So it's kind of um, a multi-ethnic country in a lot of ways or multilinguistic country. And it's made it's just, you know, it was designed to be a buffer zone. Well, it it was and it was in the way. So they invade Belgium, which was a neutral country. And this pissed off the British enough that they figured that, you know, supposedly this is the reason they gave is that they wanted to defend Belgium. And so they joined the war against Germany. So all of a sudden, within a few days, a, a needless war between Austria and Serbia has spiraled out of control and now involves Russia, Germany, France, and Great Britain. All of whom have been spending the last, you know, few decades just piling up fucking weapons. So, yep, we're ready to go here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there is some thinking involved with this: is that, um, you know, having having these big militaries was really expensive. So, like, the longer that the peace went on, it was almost like bankrupting these countries. So it's almost like they needed to fight the war so they could kind of not have to pay for such huge army. This huge arms buildup, these huge standing armies, 
well, if we fight this big war, okay, well, maybe we can win, and then we won't need such a big standing army, you know? So there is some thinking that the war had to happen, so at least the countries could move on, if that makes sense. Sort of, but that's not exactly how things happened, right? It's not, yeah. So when the war starts, there is this kind of accepted notion that this baby's going to be over by Christmas. It starts in August. Yeah, everybody was like, this will be, yeah, over by Christmas was like the tagline, right? Like, Yeah. We'll be, we'll be back for Christmas, basically. And most big wars in the past were kind of like that. When France and Germany went to war, uh, it's called the Franco-Prussian War. This is the war that led to the unification of Germany. That war did not last very long. And it kind of was like, okay, we fought a few battles. It was kind of nasty. Then it was over. And we can get on with our lives. So this was kind of the dom- you know, the idea that the war will be bad, but it'll be over. and then. You know, whoever is the winner will be the new leader of Europe, you know. So there was, yeah, there was just this kind of accepted idea that this is not going to be a long war. It'll be fine. (laughs) You know, both sides were very confident they could win. There's huge celebrations in the street when war is declared. You have these huge mobs. People are signing up, you know. There's just jubilant atmosphere that this is going to be this glorious affair. And it gets into kind of one of the cultural elements of this war is that This war really changes how warfare is thought of in the West, where in the past, war was like this very romantic, kind of sexy, idealistic endeavor that you had things like chivalry and honor, valor. Instead of like automatic weapons, right? Yeah. Instead of trench warfare and gas weapons. Yeah. Like war had always been an adventure. It always been a way to kind of prove yourself and become a man and And as a ladder up, you know, if you prove yourself in war, you can be a hero, you know, and that's probably still true. But even the language of itself just completely changed with this war. And it's it's one of the more depressing aspects of it. But when the war starts, you know, the French army has these beautiful uniforms with red and blue and white, and they ride forward on their horses with lances and big banners tied to their lances. It looks like something out of the Middle Ages, you know, glorious pageantry and chivalry on display and these you know bravery is all that matters if you're brave enough then you're going to win and so you have these brave soldiers rushing forward in their beautiful uniforms and they just get mowed down like in the thousands and by the end of the war there's no more bright uniforms there's no more people on horses even warfare has completely changed by the end of this thing and all notions of chivalry and valor they're all replaced with things by like sacrifice and duty and stuff like that. Like, so just kind of the very notion of war has been completely changed by this thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. You could talk a little bit about like what made this war so different, like the, the technology and all that stuff, like trench warfare and all that shit. Absolutely. So I think the first thing to kind of note out is just the huge populations that, you know, this was, this war came at the end of a period where there was just unprecedented growth in the West, where your populations are doubling, you're all these amazing industrial machines are coming online and the farming practices had just been completely revolutionized and it allowed for way bigger populations. And it's kind of like the first really modern part in Western history is where you have all these people living in cities all of a sudden and you just have these huge populations. And the other big aspect are the railroads, you know, because everything's very connected now. We have the railroad. We're able to move people all over the country in at a rate, at a scale that would have 100 years previous been completely unfathomable, that 
there could be so much mobility within these countries that I don't think anyone really ever saw the railroad coming, but it just completely changed everything. And so how that played into the war, though, was that it allowed people like so if the if you're being invaded, well, you still have access to your railroads. You can move people around all over the place. And then the people that are invading you, they don't have access to railroads. And so it just made it really difficult to invade anybody because you'd have to build new railroads. You'd have to, you know, somehow figure out a way to transport everything around. And with the advent of some of the new weaponry, it just, like, uh, on a scale of deadliness that, again, had probably been unfathomable even 100 years earlier, where you have new technologies like the machine gun coming online. And it took two people to fire these things. You'd have to set it up. One would fire, the other person would feed ammunition into it. But you know, it just completely changed how you would fight a battle. And what had been dominant, the dominant technology in military history up until this point had ruled supreme since the ancient world was the horse. The, you know, that's where the word chivalry comes from, chivalrier. And also cavalry. Yeah. Cavalry, yeah. yeah. The horse had dominated warfare for thousands of years, but all of a sudden it was basically made obsolete overnight by the machine gun and by barbed wire. And so traditionally, if you're invading somebody, you'd have to rely on your mobility, which was provided by the horse. But all of a sudden, that was no longer available. And these like really nasty stalemates would develop where the invader would kind of win this first series of battles, but they weren't able to kind of exploit that advantage and take over the country because the people on the defensive could reinforce with the railroad. They could set up some barbed wire and some machine guns and cavalry just was completely ineffective against that. So it made any kind of mobility in this war incredibly difficult. And it it was almost like a dual siege where these stalemates develop and both sides dig in and they're kind of like both besieging each other. Like both sides are under siege in a way. And probably one of the most horrific styles of warfare that's ever existed was this siege warfare. Uh, What else contributed to it? Um, So some of the economics involved, where in days of past, you would have uh, a certain amount of money you could spend on the war. And once you ran out of money, well, you couldn't pay your soldiers anymore. And that was basically the end of the war. (laughs) You know, it had a, a limit to itself. And, but with this, because of the birth of modern kind of central banking, we had massive amounts of credit being extended. And this allowed for the war to be fought with borrowed money that just straight up didn't exist. So it kind of changed the, I guess, capacity that states could wage war, because even though they were completely exhausted, they could lend their future wealth, the wealth that didn't exist yet, to, to buy weapons and stuff to keep the war going. So after this kind of initial stalemate that breaks out, which we can talk a little bit more about, well, instead of that being the end of the war, you know, you still have credit happening and sides can fight for much longer and at a much larger capacity than they would have been able to without the extension of just massive amounts of central bank funny money, basically. Imaginary money, credit. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and if people haven't heard our episode about money, you should go back and listen to that to sort of get a little bit more context for what we're talking about there, because it's, yeah, quite fascinating and deeply unsettling, honestly. <laughs> Absolutely. And we can talk more about that as well. Um, 
And then I think another layer to it was just the element of state control. I think probably for most of the nation state's history, they weren't that powerful. You would have like a king and a queen and like some bureaucratic kind of layers to your country, but it was more dispersed and and thinner. But with the advent of this style of warfare, the states, the governments became incredibly powerful and they were granted powers over their citizens to completely mobilize the entire country to fight this war. So they would take over everything, the food supply, all industrial output. They could even change the damn time of day. This is when daylight savings becomes a thing. Okay, well. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, the, the power of the state massively increases during this war. And that power has never been given back, by the way. A lot of kind of the modern era of governments come back to this period where to fight this war, a lot of, a lot of freedoms were destroyed to fight this damn thing. You just were able to mobilize millions and millions and millions of people and coordinate them into this war effort. So your entire economy could be based on building weapons, you know, making uniforms, providing food for the troops. And it just took on a, a scale that had previously been thought completely impossible in war. Okay. Okay, so when the, <laughs> when the British invade France, I'm sorry, when the Germans invade France, you know, they have to go through Belgium. The Belgians put up a really good fight, by the way. They have these big fortresses that, again, the fortress, the castle, was another aspect of warfare that had basically reigned supreme for thousands of years. And since the days of the ancient Greeks and Egyptians, whatever, you could build fortifications that were really, really tough to take. I'm such a nerd for that shit. Yeah, totally. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, it was like in, in the ancient Greek Mycenaean era with King Agamemnon's city of Mycenae, you take a look at that thing and just see the size of the walls and the massive amount of kind of boulders and just how thick these things were and how ominous they were and how impossible it would feel to attack one of these things. And like, yeah, you could bring up some ballista and maybe throw some some bolts or some stones at the wall, but you're not taking that wall out. That mm. wall is immobile. Like it's, it's this massive barrier and these castles and fortresses would dominate warfare. So you'd have to siege them out usually, you know, surround them, um, cut off their food. But so the Belgians have a bunch of these fortresses, incredibly, you know, impressive fortresses and that their whole kind of defensive plan lies on that. But one of the other aspects of this war was how good the artillery had become. And the Germans, after taking massive casualties, trying to storm these fortresses, well, they stop and they bring in these guns that um, they're, they take a railroad cart to move these damn things. And they're basically railroad cannons that are just absolutely, they're just huge, like fucking massive guns. And they start bombarding these forts and the forts just shatter. Like, nothing can stand up to these guns. Like, so for the first time in a long time, the guns have become more powerful than the fortresses. And once the Germans level all the fortresses, the Belgians just kind of, it's very, very hard for them to resist. And the German army just rolls through Belgium, and they keep going towards France. They get into France, and they're in position to take Paris. And there's this really famous battle, the Battle of the Marne, the miracle at the Marne, where... The German army breaks through, but the French are able to rally. And they rally this heroic for, uh, defense on this river, and they halt the German advance. And the entire plan for the German 
military to win this war was to take out France early. But after the Marne, and they failed to do that, they couldn't bring up enough reinforcements to keep the offensive going. And again, because the French could, because they controlled all the railroads, the French were able to kind of uh, circle the wagons and stabilize the front. And the German army becomes pinned down in France, and they will stay pinned down for the rest of the war. You know, the guy who was leading the German army, I think his name is Moltke, he resigned and said, the war is lost. Like, we've, we've lost the war. We failed to take out Paris. There's no way we can win this war. And he was probably right. They probably should have tried to end the war there then. But they don't. The war goes on. The stalemate develops in the West. And eventually, it's really a case of the people that are planning the war are still fighting the Napoleonic Wars, right? Like that's all the things they studied. They they studied Napoleon. They studied these tactics that had worked for thousands of years. Well, all of a sudden, it's not working. The rules of war have changed, and yeah. we have this stalemate. So how can we break the stalemate, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's when we get these crazy new things like poison gas, you know, comes, you know, and flamethrowers and um, all kinds of nasty new technologies start coming online to try to break the stalemate. And the people are planning, you know, so you're sitting back at your military headquarters and you're looking at a map and you don't really, you know, your whole career has been trained to fight war a certain way. Well, you can't, you can't fight it that way anymore. So how do you win the war? You know, how do you, we got to come up with some new ideas, right? Um, But a lot of them, you know, the best they could come up was, was, you know, okay, we can't use horses anymore. So let's just have guys charge, you know, (laughs) we'll have these massive offenses where we get, you know, millions of people together and we'll just attack and then we'll break through you know and so we end up with these just slaughterhouse battles probably some of the biggest battles ever fought in human history with just catastrophic casualties on both sides and um completely inconclusive you know so the battle of the son uh, the son river again one of the biggest battles in human history i don't think either side gained more than maybe a mile or two so we're fighting ma- battles with millions of casualties, or at least you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die in this battle, and nothing is accomplished. Nothing. And okay, well, let's try it again. Let's try it. We'll we'll move down the line a few miles, and then we'll try another offensive. Okay, same thing happens. Tens of thousands of casualties. No breakthrough. Nothing is accomplished. You know. So this kind of went on and went on and went on, and it developed into uh, almost like the realm of just like organized slaughter i guess where you'd have all these poor dudes would have to go on these offenses and they just all die and you know they see them lined up for miles and miles of of troops lined up ready to go on the offensive and they pretty much all know they're going to die and that nothing's going to happen but they do it anyways you know so it's like this really depressing kind of mutual massacre that starts taking place on the western front Hmm. yeah that is a bad situation for sure the reason it's called a world war is because there's a bunch of battles fought over the, fought all over the world. And while you know Great Britain is an, a colonial world power, they got all these things all over the world. The Germans had been trying to catch up. We talked about that scramble for Africa. Germany had taken over a number of countries in Africa. They took over uh, Tanzania was a big one, the Cameroon. So on either side, Tanzania is in East Africa, Cameroon's in West Africa. And then they had German Southwest Africa, which I believe is the modern day country of Angola. Um, So in these kind of sideshow theaters, there's battles being fought. And the British are raising troops from South Africa, from India, from uh, Nigeria to Kenya 
take over all these places from the Germans. So while this horrible carnage is taking place on the Western Front, we have all these smaller battles taking over, taking place all over the world. And because the German uh, Navy, you know, that big, awesome Navy that we we're talking about, the British have a bigger Navy. And the first thing they did was barricade Germany, blockade them. And they thought that if we can starve Germany from getting any kind of resources through the sea, that's how we're going to win this war. So they blockade the North Sea, the entrance to the Baltic, and they kind of cut the German Navy off. Now, the German Navy does make an attempt to break through, and it's called the Battle of Jutland. It's one of the biggest naval battles in history. And we get to finally see all these massively expensive battleships fight each other. And the German Navy actually performs extremely well in this battle. They sink a bunch of the British ships, but the British kind of rally the troops. They have a backup Navy that comes and reinforces them. And by the end of the battle, they're actually winning. And the German Navy's in jeopardy of losing everything. And so they retreat back to their port. And after that, they never come out again. And so the German uh, the the British Navy is able to blockade the entire state of Germany. They can no longer get any resources over the ocean. Uh, and that means they can no longer reinforce any of their colonies all over the world. And so one by one, all their colonies start falling. And you know, Jap- Japan gets into the action. Japan's an ally of the Great of Great Britain. They invade Tsingtao and they fight the Germans. They conquer Tsingtao. They get their first um, stronghold in China proper. Um, so you just have this. A lot of countries are kind of getting into the war, trying to steal up these places from the Germans, and that's kind of why it's known as a world war. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And while most of the action is going to be in Europe, like a place like Africa was massively affected by this war. There was one particularly excellent German commander who fought this guerrilla warfare in Africa where he's moving over across like the whole continent. He has his army of, uh, of African soldiers. They're called the Ascari. And these guys were trained up really well and it was an excellent fighting force and the British could not defeat this guy. They're chasing him all over Africa. But in the process the whole continent is being devastated without going into it too much, but just the continent of Africa was a complete sideshow. None of these battles mattered. None of them affected the outcome of the war. It's a complete sideshow and millions of people end up dying because of the war in Africa. And it's one of the main tragedies of the war is the effect it had on the colonial subjects of these great powers where they're fighting over these little insignificant colonies and the native peoples are doing the fighting and they're suffering immensely because of it. Um, so it, a lot of the coverage of the war kind of overlooks that aspect of it, but it really was a world war. You had people fighting all over the world and uh, it really affected people that you would never expect to have been affected by this. And another aspect of this that makes it, an, you know, another part of the world war is that, you know, the French have a huge colonial empire as well in places like Vietnam, North Africa, West Africa, uh, the Caribbean. And while their population was declining going into the war, the German population was booming and they start basically importing a bunch of soldiers from their colonial colonies. And so you have people from Africa fighting on the Western Front, people from Vietnam fighting on the Western Front, people from North Africa. So it was very diverse set of troops fighting in the trenches in Western Europe. 
it's another reason why it's called the World War. Okay. All right. Sorry, I'm all over the place here. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Um, how the war is finally ended? Well, a bunch of the states start collapsing. Um, so one of the ones we didn't mention was Italy. So Italy joins this war. And originally, they were a member of the German alliance, which is called the Three Power Pact. And that included Austria, Hungary, Germany, and Italy. Italy is very similar to Germany that it's only been unified in the latter half of the 1800s. And it wasn't quite as industrialized as Germany, but it was rapidly industrializing. And they formed this agreement with the Germans and with the Austrians that if any of them are attacked, then all of them will come to their aid. And But the British come to the Italians and they make one of these secret treaties with them. They promise a bunch of territory that had historically been Italian during like the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, territories in the Austrian Empire, in, on like the Dalmatian coast, the Adriatic coast of the former Yugoslavia. It's like, okay, well, if you join our side of a war, once we defeat Austria, you can have a bunch of their territory. And so they make the secret agreement with Italy, and Italy actually joins the allies, the Entente, instead of the central powers. And they say, okay, well, the the agreement for our defensive pact was that if one of us were attacked, we would join the each other's. But Austria was the aggressor. They started the war. And so we don't want to join you in the war. We're actually going to join your enemies. And it starts just a whole nother front to this war. All of a sudden, Southern Europe is, you know, involved massively. Basically, all of Europe is like engulfed by this war. But so Italy joins the war. Now, meanwhile, the British have a bunch of territories in the Middle East. They've been picking and picking at the Ottoman Empire for many, many years. And the Germans come to the Ottomans and they say, okay, well, you know, Britain's having to put a lot of resources into this war in Western Europe. They're going to be weak in the Middle East. And you're going to be able to reconquer all these places that you lost. So if you join our side in the war, your empire can be great again. And so the Ottoman Turks joined the war on the side of the Germans. And so even just what started with these Western powers or central and Western powers, all of a sudden has spiraled out of control to include the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And the war has just grown massive at this point. Fighting all through the Middle East, fighting all through Africa. There's fighting in Asia. There's fighting in Pacific islands where the Japanese and the British are taking over these islands from the Germans. So it's just completely taken on a proportion that nobody ever thought it would. And guess what? It doesn't end at Christmas, right? The war keeps going. And the main reason for this is basically because of, it's my opinion, um, the American banking system. So the Federal Reserve has, has just come into existence. Basically, six months before this war breaks out, the Federal Reserve becomes a thing. And this new endless piggy bank, well, they start extending massive, massive credits to the allied powers. And so a country like France and Britain that maybe wouldn't have been able to keep going the whole time, now they can borrow basically a limitless amount of money. And not only are they borrowing the money from the Americans, they're paying the Americans money to build weapons for them to also borrow. So it's like a double whammy. They're, we're going to build, we're going to basically lend a bunch of money to you and you're going to give us that money to build weapons. And then we're going to sell that money back to you at credit. If that makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. So the American economy and banking industry starts becoming heavily involved in this war. 
there's a huge kind of industrialization, um, I guess a huge arm in, arms industry that starts coming online in America. And while at first they were kind of selling some weapons to the Germans, you really couldn't sell them any weapons, even if you wanted to, because they're being blockaded. You know, the, the British Navy has cut off access from Germany. So even if you wanted to give them weapons, you couldn't get there. You'd have to basically choose one side or the other. And the Americans chose the Allies, probably because there's much closer ties to those countries and it was much more convenient to do so. And so the Americans start supplying the British and the French with massive amounts of armaments and credit to keep the war going. But countries like Italy and Austria weren't really privy to that, and the Ottoman Empire, and even Russia. As the war churns on and on and on, and there's no winner in sight, and we're having these huge battles that I'm just kind of brushing over, uh, some of these states start to kind of crumble, and the war can no longer be fought, and they just kind of have to drop out. And so Russia, Russia has the revolution, and as bad as things were on the front for the Russian soldiers, it was actually the home front that broke, and people had just had enough, and you know, there's a revolution in, in Russia, and so Russia eventually has to drop out of the war, and after that happens, they make this huge peace agreement with Germany. Germany takes over like all of Eastern Europe, but Germany hasn't had access to fresh resources the entire war, basically. They have a few trade partners like Sweden and the Ottomans, but it can't make up for the massive amount of material that's coming from the new world. And eventually they just kind of start running out of resources. They're having to melt down church bells. They're digging up the pipes to melt them into bullets. You know, there's a big famine that happens. There's called the turnip winter where one of the crops fails and people are basically starving in Germany. And the German army is so massive that they're requisitioning like all the food in the country and the privation of the citizens is getting to a, a crisis point where eventually it feels like there's going to be a revolution in Germany if they don't stop the war. Okay. And so the, there, the, the war is eventually stopped and there's an armistice that's declared. Um, the German armies are deep within France, right? So, no, nobody stepped foot in Germany like this whole war. Like the Russians invaded it for a little bit, but they got fought off. So if the war had just kind of ended like a white peace, they may have kind of won the war because they controlled a lot more territory than the other people, but they agree to have this peace conference, the Versailles Peace Conference. So the war just, the war has an armistice and then they're going to negotiate the, a peace at a conference. All right. Uh, and one of the main reasons that they felt like they couldn't win the war is that well, America joins the war after like four hard-fought years where the country is sacrificing like everything to keep this going. All these countries are. They're making tremendous amounts of sacrifice. All of a sudden, America joins the war and they had a brand new army with brand new equipment and they start showing up by the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. This American army, it really the, the war kind of ends before they ever get going. It would have been really, really difficult for the Germans to stop them because, you know, the Germans were exhausted and this American army is, you know, fresh. They got the best equipment. And as soon as their troops get more experience, it's going to be really difficult to stop this thing. So the Germans decide to accept this armistice to end the war now before Germany gets conquered, basically. Okay. Whew. And this is where we get to the Versailles Peace Conference. And... 
basically it's this huge kind of convention happens at the estates of the French kings, you know, Versailles, the Louis XIV's magnificent palace complex. They decide to hold the peace conference there. All the powers that fought in it send representatives to the peace conference. And this is where Germany really gets their ass kicked is in this peace conference. Now, a lot of their behavior had been, um, as they were retreating towards the end of the war, they dynamited a bunch of like French castles and elements of French um, cultural heritage were just needlessly destroyed by the Mm -hmm. Germans at the end of the war. Basically, a massive swath of France was in utter ruins and had been completely destroyed. I mean, they're still digging up landmines from this. I think the French Corps of Engineers has dug up over a million landmines. And there's still sections of France that are off limits because it's just too dangerous to go there. The amount of uh, poison gas and just artillery explosives that went off in these battles completely ruined the environment in these places. You had huge forests that once existed. Now there's nothing there. It's just a polluted wreck. And so the French were really pissed. They want the Germans to pay for this. You know, the whole battle has been fought in, in France. Well, you should have to pay for it. And so you basically had one side that didn't really decisively win the war. It looked like they may have won it if it kept going, but they decisively win the peace process. And the unrest in Germany is getting so bad that they're afraid there's going to be a revolution within Germany which is exactly what happened in Russia. And there was actually some revolts. There was a revolt at one of those naval dockyards. That Navy that had fought the one battle, well, towards the end of the war, in kind of a desperate attempt, the German high command decides to send the Navy out again and try to break the blockade. Maybe then we can somehow get more supplies and keep the war going. But the the sailors revolt, and they refuse to do that. They think it's a suicide mission. They revolt, they kill their commanding officers, and there's this big naval rebellion. And that's basically when Germany had to end the war. So maybe we can at least keep our country, won't have some kind of revolutionary madness like it happens in, happened in Russia and happened in France, you know, 100 years earlier. Um, but at this peace conference, because their position is so weak, they just can't, they don't have any bargaining power. And the winning powers just dictate the terms of the peace to them and comes to a point where they basically just have to accept. Everyone knows that they're on the very, on the verge of collapse and we can just dictate the peace terms to it, to them. And part of these peace terms was that they're going to have to repay for all of the damage, all of the costs of the war. And again, because a lot of these costs were borrowed from the Americans by the French and the British, they basically have to pay the Americans a bunch of money. Not only that, they have to claim moral responsibility for the war. They have to say that, you know, take the blame for it all. You know, we're completely responsible for it. While the truth may have been more complicated, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like the Austrians were kind of the ones getting aggro (laughs) at first, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, yeah. And meanwhile, Austria did not perform very well in this war. They were mostly fighting Italy and Russia. Uh, they did not do very well against Russia or Serbia. And uh, it's a rough war for the Austrians. They're basically surrounded and they're fighting like three or four countries. And so definitely not what they signed up for either. You know, they didn't they want to just massive not. World they could have accepted Serbia's fucking that Serbia. Again, let's go back to the beginning of this story when Serbia accepted the fucking terms they were offered and it was not necessary to invade them in the first place. Right. Like, 
Yes, and I think maybe I may have overstressed that they accepted everything. I think they basically accepted everything, but there was basically like one clause that they didn't want to become part of their empire. They still wanted to be independent. But it was all a ruse anyway, just to, yeah, okay. So yeah, they basically caved on every demand except for their independence, and they still attacked them. So yeah, I mean, so if you want to assign some blame, then yeah, Konrad von Hotzendorf, the head of the Austrian high command, has a lot of blame to be assigned to him. But anyways, so the state of Austria like ceases to exist after this war. I mean, Austria becomes its own country, Hungary becomes its own country, and the Balkan states that were ruled by the two of them are are broken up into these, you know, into several countries, but we get this country called Yugoslavia, the Kingdom of the Southern Slavs. That's what that means. And that was a really troublesome country that has a, its own we could do a whole podcast on Yugoslavia. That has since split up into various countries after the fall of uh, communism. Now, now all those individual people have their own country. So there's Croatia, there's Serbia, there's Slovenia, there's Bosnia, there's Herzegovina, Montenegro. So these are all independent get... countries now. Okay, yeah. So this is where we get the term Balkanization, right? So in some ways, the you know the the Balkan people kind of got their freedom from the war, but they were kind of united in this kind of country that didn't make a lot of sense, the Yugoslavia. But other parts of Europe do get their freedoms. Countries like the Ukraine, this is when Ukraine gets their freedom, and um, Finland and Poland, all these places that had been places but never places, never countries on a map. So these kind of empires that dominated Central and Eastern Europe are kind of divided up and I guess balkanized. Um, and we get all these kind of smaller countries. This will be a major sticking point going into World War II, where Germany doesn't, and it, Germany and Italy don't feel like these are real countries. They didn't fight for their independence, and we want to take them over. Um, they're countries on the map only. They're not real countries, and they should be part of our empire. So that'll be something that does play into the Second World War. Um, but there's just there's so many elements to this war and this peace process in general, and definitely just massively skimming over the, over it here but but yeah so uh, but just kind of germany will have to give up all of its overseas territories they can no longer have a military they can have basically a self-defense military of a hundred thousand troops okay so going into this war they had a military of several million men after the war they're only allowed a hundred thousand guys and not only that parts of germany like the big economic parts in the west western germany it's called the Ruhr and the Saar. These are where the heart of their industry is and where all that coal is. Well, these are going to be controlled by the French. The French are going to have troops occupying those areas just to make sure they never do it again, you know? Um, and so this peace deal is just utterly humiliating. And the people back home in Germany, you know, they had been used to a lot of victories in this war. Like they had a lot of major, major victories in this war. It had been very patriotic and very exciting time to be a German where finally like German greatness is proving itself in the world. We're fighting the whole world and we're kind of winning. And even at the end of the war, it wasn't like we got conquered. The war ended in France. We still had troops way deep into France. You know, we controlled all of Eastern Europe after Russia dropped out. So having such a massive reversal at the peace deal just left a really bad taste in people's mouths back in Germany. And this is one of the big things that the Nazis will exploit, you know, saying we didn't actually lose the war it's this kind of myth that you know there is a stab in the back you know, like the german politicians stabbed the nation in the back and that's why we lost the war the soldiers won the war but the politicians 
you know, betrayed the country. And so if we have another war, well, this time, you know, we're led by nationalistic and, you know, people that represent the German people, the German workers. So we're not going to be led by these, you know, intellectual bureaucrats that betrayed us. You know, we're going to be led by working class, you know, average guys that that's one of the main things that the Nazis were able to exploit was just the the sour taste that this peace deal left. I mean, there was some thinking in the American camp with the one of the big generals that was in charge of the American army was that if we don't actually take the war to Germany, they're not going to believe that they lost the war and we're going to have to fight this thing again in 20 years. So that was what General Pershing said, and he was basically 100% right. But that's kind of how it unfolded. And by that point, once that kind of armistice had been declared, the British and the French had had enough. They didn't want any more war. So they figured that we'll just win this peace deal so thoroughly that Germany will never be able to make war again. Like We're going to try to take away their ability to do this again. Even though we didn't conquer them, we definitely did not conquer them. Um, but maybe we can harm them so much with this peace deal that they'll never be a threat again. But it very much backfired and was like the main impetus for the Second World War was how bad the peace deal was. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of ironic even calling it a peace deal, right? It's like, it's definitely still like a tactic of of war. I mean, like, there's a saying that like, you know, diplomacy is still an art of war. And like, I think that, yeah, we see that here. And and it worked so well, right? Germany never, never fought any more wars again after that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was just a great we idea. We still today look at that peace deal and <laughs> say, what a great job they all did. Yes, and what there a was great like job. This, you know, because the war was so devastating, um, it really kind of shattered a lot of the, I guess, the, the mythos of the 19th century, and which had been a very hopeful time. And Europe was just brimming with confidence for hundreds kind of strung together a few hundred years where they were just dominating everything. And everything just kept getting better and better and better. But all of a sudden, it seemed like it just came crashing down. And it was hard for people to get past this war. Like people who fought in the war were suffering from diseases that had never really been recognized before, like post-traumatic stress disorder. And people's psyches would shatter during these battles, like the amount of violence happening around them was just too much for the human psyche to handle. And so a lot of the veterans that fought in the war, instead of coming back as heroes and, and you know, all that, their lives were just completely ruined. And some of them were just couldn't even go on living. You know, there's a lot of suicide and a lot of just people that had to be put into like mental institutions because they could no longer like even function yeah yeah we don't really under like they didn't understand what we understand about like trauma now like if people are curious about like learning about trauma i would recommend the book uh the body keeps the score by vessel vanderkock because we do have a lot of modern therapies that can help with things like that but back then this was a completely new phenomenon it was and people thought like a lot of the commanding officers just thought they were cowards so you have people that basically have nervous breakdown and they can no longer fight and they're being executed. They're they're taking them back and shooting them because they think they're being cowardly. But you know, even if they wanted to, they just couldn't. You know. Yeah, there's only so, there's so much you can take in terms of like stress before you just kind of have a meltdown. Sometimes, right? Like it's that's a thing that can happen. And yeah, if people have never seen anything like this before, they've never been trained to expect this or anything like that. So yeah. 
so, yeah, it was very a very sad legacy from the war. And while there were some kind of, you know, there of course after the war ended, there are parades in France and England and America, and they still try to go through this bombastic um, celebrations of martial honor and all that, but it, it all just rings very hollow after the sacrifice that's been made. And for what, you know, and for what, what did we gain out of this war? I mean, what did anybody just gain a, out of it? Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like really the, there was a lot of environmental damage, a lot of human life loss, a lot of wealth that went from Europe to America there. Um, yeah. I mean, there yeah. we, we were looking we we came into it at this time of prosperity and you know hope and things you know all these new technologies being uh, developed and things but yeah then all of a sudden we've got these big stockpiles and armies and you know they sort of are their own excuse to be used in some ways like you have to justify having them by using them right or whatever or what like what you said like they were just so expensive to maintain that it was an untenable situation that was sort of bound to eventually maybe break out. I don't know. Hard to say, right? Yeah, that was definitely a big part of it. And just after this war, like, how do you keep going? How do you, how do you go back to normal, you know? And the whole country had been chained. These countries were changed irrevocably, irrevocably by this war. When the government takes over and can actually change your clock, they're changing the damn time, you know? Mm. Government now has the ability to change time on you. And they can go into every aspect of your life. And things like propaganda and statewide coercion become the norm. And um, mutual suspicion and the hunt for spies. And in America, this, this war massively changed America. And America was never threatened by this war. If there was any winner of the war, it was America. And America comes out of this thing, United States of America, as prob- yeah, as probably the clear winner. They have a huge arms industry now after this thing. They have massive amount of foreign debt that's owed to them. And at the peace conference, they are the main power that's able to kind of dictate things at the peace conference. And there was this notion that because this war was so bad that we're never going to have another war. Like we all learned our lesson here. We're going to come together and we're going to change how everything works so we can never do this again. It was very idealistic, um, and they formed this kind of I, this thing called the League of Nations, which was supposed to be a international organization that would prevent any other world war from ever happening again. All the countries would join the war. I'm, I'm sorry, all the countries would join this League of Nations, and they'd all have this big treaty where if one of them was attacked, then they would all come to the country that was attacked's aid and help help them fend off the aggressors and. Through this kind of idea for international uh, organizations, this is going to prevent anything like this ever happening again. So there was that kind of this this hope, I guess, this very naive hope that through diplomacy we can prevent this from ever happening again. And the League of Nations would go on to be just a massive failure. And but that that is how they set it up. Like Woodrow Wilson, who was the American president, who was you know almost dictating the terms at Versailles was incredibly idealistic and thought that he had this way forward for the human race that we could prevent war from ever happening again. And well, I mean, it, it just might so have happens that been more effective if like the terms of the peace were more, you know, palatable or tenable to the Germans, right? Like Well, yeah, I mean, in retrospect, when we look back at Versailles, it was just 
it was massively punitive. And while I personally do think that if anyone was to blame, it probably was the Germans for that blank check that they gave to the Austrians. And the fact that they had this whole plan to invade France, you know, already in the works, and they had to go through Belgium to do it. And they committed a bunch of atrocities along the way, by the way. And what, once they were in France, they just destroyed a bunch of shit needlessly and just behaved like complete assholes, basically the whole war. They didn't need to do any of that. Like, so they definitely weren't making any friends uh, that way. But after the Napoleonic Wars, you had some really good diplomats, like that guy Metternich. We talked about him a little bit, but he was in charge of the Vienna peace deal after the Napoleonic Wars. And instead of punishing France and turning them into this debtor's colony that future generations are going to resent you for, they welcomed France back into the club of nations. It wasn't a punitive deal. They forgave a lot of the bad things that the French did and said, okay, well, if there's going to be any kind of future in Europe, France is going to have to be part of it, and they're going to have to be strong and not resentful. And so, yeah, comparing the Versailles peace deal to the Vienna peace deal, they're just night and day, like completely night and day. Okay. And it should be said that after World War II, you know, the allied powers that win World War II, well... They let all these countries off the hook, basically. They go back to that Vienna model where instead of punishing, you know, Italy, France, or Italy, Germany, and Japan, we're gonna we're gonna forgive a lot of this shit just so we can forge a way forward. So the diplomats definitely, I think, learned from Versailles and the failure of Versailles uh, after the Second World War, at least. Yeah, totally. Another kind of interesting aspect of this war, though, and just kind of the the reaching legacies of it are just all the new technologies that weren't necessarily combat related. Um, so a lot of the modern world that like, comes to be during this war. And one example is just like the automobile, basically, be- because the horse was no longer available. There's this huge kind of push to develop the automobile as a replacement for it. And same thing with airplanes. This is when airplanes start to really take off. You have all this money and all of this statewide focused economy being put into these technologies, and they just become massively developed in a very short amount of time. Uh, this is when the the tank becomes a thing. You know, so one of the ways to break the stalemate on the Western Front was to come up with new forms of mobility, and what they came up with was the tank. And <laughs> so it's. Very different than the horse, but it kind of serves the same purpose. So we can move guys forward on the battlefield. And so the t- you know the tank has gone on to completely change warfare, but this is when the tank comes online. But even things like condoms, like this is when condoms are invented, hmm. because there's so many soldiers in these you know military camps. You know, there's a lot of sexually transmitted diseases happening. Yeah, yeah. And so this is when the condom was invented to as a way to prevent this, and even the the pantyhose. Well, this is when pantyhose were invented. Uh, because all the men were off fighting in the war, the women back home were having to run all the heavy industries. And so you had, you know, women building tanks and building shells and cannons and shit, and they needed something for them to wear. And so they came up with the, the pantyhose. You need to wear pantyhose really... while you're building the tanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You couldn't really wear a dress when you're doing these things. So they came up with, you know, things for women to wear and a bunch of just kind of everyday technologies that we use today were go back to the great war 
which is one of the most interesting legacies of it. Yeah, that is interesting. Nice little part to touch on is the Christmas truce. Yeah, it's been such a yeah, it's been such like a depressing episode. It seems like it would be nice to end with something <laughs> like a little bit a, like a one little bright spot in this story at least. Yeah, it was kind of like the death throes of that that previous age, the the age of chivalry and and valor. There was one little episode that you know, just kind of illustrated the changing of the times, but and that was after you know, that, that first year of war, when the German army gets pinned down in France, after the Battle of the Marne, you know, the British send an army into France and the stalemate develops. But on that first Christmas, when everybody was thinking they'd be back home because everyone thought the war would be over by Christmas, there is actually something known as the Christmas Truce, which is, yeah, one of the more beautiful uh, episodes of the war, where on Christmas Day, the and I guess this happened in a bunch of different places. It wasn't just one place, but all along the Western Front, in a number of places, the Germans and the Allies went out and chilled with each other. They played a soccer game in one place. They were exchanging gifts and chocolates and champagne and just buddying it up, you know. For the for all of Christmas, it was like the whole war just stopped and, you know, the, the men in, off both sides could actually go hang out with each other. And I'm sure they were complaining about their superiors and all that. Um, but yeah, the Christmas truce was a, one of the one of the more uplifting aspects of the war. Um, it only happened that first Christmas. The powers that be within the military high command were so scared by this thing that you know they thought they had lost control of their militaries and that there was going to be some kind of massive coup or revolution and everything's going to fall apart. And so... Any further Christmas, you know, shenanigans like that was punishable by death, basically. But on that first Christmas, yeah, everyone laid down their arms and just hung out with each other. Yeah, man, what a crazy story. I I hope this was a little bit coherent. I know this is all over the place. Um, There's a lot to this story. We could have a whole podcast just on World War I. Uh, There's an excellent YouTube series just called The Great War by Indy Nidell that goes week by week through all the events of the war. And I think it's like a 200-part series. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of stories and, and elements to this thing. There's so many layers to it. But yeah, I hope this was at least a little bit of a, a, a dip into the enormous and complex subject that is the First World War. It is depressing. Um, again, there's not a lot of winners besides maybe America. and Yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to be continuing this story on here soon as we move into the next chapter. Because World War II happened pretty soon after this, right? Yeah, about 20 years later. Talk about some of the interwar stuff if we wanted to. Like One really interesting part of, of kind of the interwar years is, well, the Great Depression and kind of the economic collapse of this kind of new way of doing economics, of this credit-based economy does not go very well. It basically implodes within 20 years and we have massive um, economic recessions and depressions all across the Western world. Um, but there's also other interesting elements where like the this huge arm industry that developed in America during the war, well, they were selling all of that stuff to foreign governments basically during the war. But after the war, those industries had to shift into more domestic products and more domestic economies. And so 
you basically had all these huge industries that were now making products for everyday people. And how can we get people to buy these products? This is really the birth of advertising as what we think of it now starts coming into existence, where these massive industrial kind of machines need to figure out a way to get people to buy stuff, basically. And this whole new, I don't know, science or art form uh, comes into existence, advertising. And it's just dominating the world right now. But it, it kind of has its roots in World War One as well. All right. Fascinating. Yeah, that would be great to talk about. Before we close this one up here, I think we should probably remind everybody to check out the other great podcasts on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We've got Administrism, Grognostics, Primordia, XV Planus, Luxacult, and Smuts Up. Hell yeah. And I believe I believe the Green Mushroom now has a website. Is that correct? Uh, yes, the Green Mushroom Project has a website. So if people are curious about the project, they can go and check that out. And um, yes, there will be a link to that in the show notes. So if people want to give us suggestions or questions or they have um, ideas for topics that they'd like to cover, where should they send those? Oh, that's a great question, Luxa. If you guys want to reach out, you can find us at adhochistorypod at gmail.com or on Instagram, at Ad Hoc History. All right, fuck yeah. Well, definitely don't be shy. Reach out. We always love to hear from you all. And yeah, this is another great story. Thank you so much, Asher, for uh, regaling me with this tale. <laughs> well, thank you so much, dude, for sitting there and listening to that. I feel like I just bombarded you with like a tremendous amount of information. Oh, no, it's it good stuff. Yeah, it might have been super coherent, but oh, uh, no, hopefully I... it was good. I thought it was pretty coherent. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, obviously a really complicated story and we just scratched the surface, but I think that we kind of got the broad strokes of it. And I think that, yeah, we were able to tease out some of the nuance of, yeah, how things broke so fucking very bad so quickly. Well, awesome, dude. Thank you so much for joining me, Luxa. Thank you. And thank you for everyone for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Absolutely. Awkward ending. <laughs> Your body grows bigger. Your mind must flower. It's great to learn. Cause knowledge is power. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. E-I-O.